0: Israel is a land of diverse cultures, religions, foods, music and people. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he explores the devout and divine, the -the off-the-wall and outrageous and everything in between. Right here on 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman. This is the New Blue Review. Welcome to the program on this Monday morning. We're well into January and uh, heading up to, uh, heading up to Tubishvat, by the way. Birthday of the Tree is my favorite show in the year. So keep listening for that because we're going to have uh, some great guests on, on that show. But that's still in February at the moment. We're still focused on January and uh, we've got some great guests in the studio. Uh, for you today. If you've ever been to Israel and been to Haifa, uh, you would have noticed that really the main uh place that sort of overlooks the whole the whole town is the bahai gardens the beautiful gardens with the the domed buildings in it and uh you might have wondered where that comes from and why so uh, we are going to be speaking just after the break to representatives of the bahai faith who are the people who actually built the bahai gardens uh in in Haifa and you'll find out why they're there what what are they doing and uh what are they all about so it's going to be a great show uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, to bringing it to you. If you want to ask any questions, by the way, uh, please feel free. You can telegram us on 0618951019. That's 0618951019, or you can SMS us on 34519 if you have any questions. We're going to be talking to Salim and Nasim uh, Nakhjavani on uh, on the show today. So that is what's going to come up just after the break. This is the new blue review with Benji Schulman. Back with 101.9 High FM. And as I said, we are talking about the Bahai faith today, who uh, have in fact their headquarters in, uh, in 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 Israel, in Haifa, and uh, we're going to be discussing that and uh, looking into it in general. And who we have in studio to help us do that is Salim and Nasim Nachavani, and, and uh, yeah, they actually are Joburgers, uh at the moment, anyway, uh, and they and they live here. And uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about the work that they do. Uh, 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 husband and wife combination, uh, doctor and lawyer uh, combination. You guys almost actually could just be Jewish, you know? Could you on the Jewish show? We, we want to make our grandmothers proud. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, welcome to the show and thank you so much for being with us. Thank, thank you. Thank you for having Thanks us Thanks, so, Veggie. So before we get into, uh, you know, some of the, the background of the religion and, the, and, and and Israel and all this kind of thing, I, I just want you, you guys to give us a bit of your backstory because, uh, when I say you drove, because you guys actually have strong African uh, roots and it would be very nice if you guys could just tell us how did you meet and, and, and what part of Africa were you from before you arrived here?
1: You know, I never had the chance to come to Africa myself, but Uh my father was born here, and I discovered my great-grandfather is actually buried here Uh in in Uganda. So my family were among the first Baha'is to move to Africa in in the 1950s. Nassim has her own story.
2: (laughs) So um, I moved to Nigeria at the age of two weeks, Um, Uh and then with a short interim in Canada after that, we chose to return to South Africa. So South Africa is really where I've grown up. Um,
0: I mean, I, I can imagine that a Nigeria-Canada move must have been quite interesting.
2: It was. And, and of course we didn't meet in any of those places. We met in Holland. Okay. <laughs> Our story is a rather a complicated one.
0: But nonetheless, uh, it, it's certainly an interesting one. So we'll have to, we'll have to bring you on for the personal hour uh, another time. Uh, so, so, so they start by telling us uh, about the Baha'i Faith. What, what is it all about and, and, and what is, what is the background?
2: So I think we can say that the Baha'is around the world are striving to translate the principles that Baha'u'llah has brought into reality, often in the most unassuming of settings. Um, and one of the pivotal principles is that of the oneness of humanity. The soul has no race, no gender, no class, and that in itself renders all forms of prejudice intolerable. Um, and we know that the root cause of prejudice is ignorance, so Bahais are largely involved in educational processes that strive to ensure that knowledge is accessible to all, that it doesn't remain in the hands of a privileged few.
0: And and I mean, are there principles that the Baha'i live by? Are there are there you know are there are there things that you can tell a Baha'i if 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 uh, if they tell you something or don't tell you something?
1: You know, so Bahais are followers of Baha'u'llah, who was a messenger of God who announced himself in what is today Iran, what was then Persia. And he he declared yeah. that he was the one who is fulfilling the promises of old and has come to establish a world civilization based on principles of unity and justice. And Baha'is in their own ways are just striving to put these teachings into practice, uh, uh limited though we are at the very beginning of our process. Yeah.
0: And, and 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 when you talk about the Baha'i as as a as a prophet as uh, someone, there's there's recognition in the tradition of other prophets and and connections to to other prophets that maybe the listeners would would know of as well. Yes.
1: Very much so. So Baha'is believe that that God has never left humanity without guidance; that the Lord is always guiding humanity through these teachers. And, and many of your listeners will know, of course, of Moses as one of those teachers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Baha'is recognize then the. Uh, that these series of uh, messengers of God, of manifestations of God, progressively reveal the will and purpose of the Lord for all of us uh, from age to age. So Baha'u'llah, Baha'is believe, is the latest but not the last in this series of divine uh, messengers or educators.
2: And essentially, I think we also believe that religion is one. Mm -hmm. It's one progressive story unfolded to man and and that this Baha'u'llah has revealed a new chapter in a never-ending story.
0: Okay, so so that's some of the basics of the faith. Um, what about the what about the gardens in in Haifa? So how, how did those come to be? That uh, that that, uh, and, and what do they represent? So there's a very
1: beautiful story associated with those gardens in Haifa. Some of your listeners may have visited the gardens and actually walked up the terraces and seen that up near the building with the golden dome which is actually the shrine of the forerunner of Bahá'u'lláh, who is known by the title the Bab, the Gate. They will may have seen a grove of cypress trees, a tight grove, and it was at that spot that Bahá'u'lláh, when he was on Mount Carmel, pointed out to his uh, son that, that, in fact, the shrine of the Bab should be built there and designated Haifa as the spiritual and administrative center of the faith. Now this was long before the establishment of the state of Israel as it is today. Um, Baha'u'llah ended up in that land in a remarkable way because of course he was originally a Persian nobleman who turned his back on a position in the court of the king, found himself after he declared his mission being exiled, uh, first uh, by the by the by the Persian government and then in concert with the Ottoman government being sent from Iran to what is today Iraq to what is today Turkey and eventually ending up in uh, a prisoner in what was then the Ottoman prison city of Akko. Mm-hmm. After towards the very end of his life he was released from imprisonment and was permitted to reside just outside Akko. So those those places are for the Bahais the holiest places in the world, and uh, the world administrative center then is on Mount Carmel. Bahá'u'lláh is buried just outside Akko in a shrine that is open to everyone to visit.
0: Uh, it's actually very interesting because we we tend to think of Haifa as the mm-hmm. third city of Israel, and uh, you know there's lots of people and it's a very uh, sort of uh, multi-ethnic city, a very interesting place. But it, it actually it it pretty much. There wasn't much there until, until they started building, uh, you know, the Baha'i infrastructure, because even, even then after that, the British were the first to really, like, establish a city, but it it wasn't really a place until very recently.
1: Yes, it's true. I mean, the Baha'is have been associated with Haifa and Akko since the very beginning of, since Baha'u'llah arrived there. Mm -hmm. There was a little community there. But today, the only Baha'is in Israel are those that are serving as religious volunteers at the Baha'i World Center. So then, Baha'is don't really reside in Israel.
0: But, but you do have, I mean, if you go to the gardens, you'll often have people there who'll greet you and, uh, and, and interestingly, they're, they're often not, I mean, you say, as you said, they're not from Israel. They're from all over the world. People come and volunteer in the gardens and, and to do work there. Mm-hmm. So, so that's the garden. And you say that it's open. So people can go, uh, can go, can go visit. They can go see it. I mean, I know I've done it. It's, it's a, it's a beautiful spot and, 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 and it's completely open. People can go see it. Mm, yes. Very much so. Okay, so there we go. Now you know the history of uh, why there is a beautiful garden in Haifa. Uh, it wasn't just part of the, the city's tourism project, although clearly you guys uh, <laughs> really should get an award for that. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll be speaking again uh, about the about the Baha'i uh, and, uh, and Israel and the faith. This is the new Blue Review with Benji Shulman. Talking today to Salim and Nasim uh who are connected with the Baha'i faith, uh, living here in Johannesburg, and we're just talking about the Baha'i and uh, the fact that they uh, uh, live in Israel. So, so, or, 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 or the, the not live, but are, are stationed in Israel from an administrative perspective. But that is a good question. Uh, maybe to 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 go on to the next point is, uh, where do Baha'i live? Because if the Bola was exiled from Persia. Did Baha'i ever go back to Iran? What is the status of where Baha'i live?
1: So Baha'is live all over the world, actually. It's one of the most diverse and geographically widespread communities uh, on the face of the planet. So there are Baha'is in, in all parts of South Africa, and uh, also there are Baha'is in Iran.
2: And wherever the Baha'is find themselves, in whatever settings they find themselves, they strive to work alongside others, to serve their communities, to contribute to the well-being of their communities. And you find them all around the globe, as Salim said.
0: But in Iran in particular, that's been a bit of a challenge. It doesn't look as though, in terms of the history, uh, that that they've ever really gotten over the fact that there was this community that lived either in Persia or Iran.
1: You know, if you examine humanity's religious history, every time a teacher comes with a message from the divine, Mm -hmm. it stirs up a tremendous commotion in the society. Certainly that's true of Moses. It's certainly true of Christ. It's certainly true of the Prophet Muhammad. And so it was also true of Baha'u'llah in the community in which he came Mm -hmm. among the Iranian people. It stirred up a tremendous commotion because his teachings revolutionized uh, the society. He proclaimed for the, you know, the the absolute equality of women and men, for example, uh, the abolition of all forms of prejudice. Uh, He indicated as well that the corrupt practices of Monarchs and clergy should be swept aside and that, in fact, elected institutions should govern the people. Mm-hmm. And this was profoundly challenging, profoundly desirable for much of the population, but challenging to those in power. And this, of course, was long before uh, Iran, as the country we know today, was established. But that, that, that commotion and that influence that the, the, the teachings have continue also to affect that society. Um, so today in Iran, it's true, Baha'is are, are persecuted for their beliefs. They're not able to access tertiary education. They're barred from most forms of employment. Uh, they're not treated as equal citizens. Um, they're not recognized as people of the book. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, as a result, they face it. But what's very interesting about that is the response of the Baha'i community. Mm-hmm. Because so often when a group is oppressed, there's a tendency then to close the doors. Right, right. To, to 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 put you know, circle the wagons, and and then after some time, when security is reestablished, these feelings of resentment and bitterness can enter our hearts, mm-hmm. and that can even lead the group that has been oppressed to take on some of the characteristics of the oppressor, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's what I think scholars call the cycle of violence. Right. Um, the Baha'is are resolutely trying to resist such a movement and instead adopting something that, that I guess is described in the literature as constructive resilience. Try to build a better alternative when you're being oppressed. Mm-hmm. And so Baha'is established an underground university in order to make sure that this access to knowledge that Nassim was speaking about can be promoted for Baha'is as well as for others. Um, they They continue to be well-wishers of the entire government and people of Iran. In fact, they're loyal citizens of Iran. They want nothing more than the good of the country, just like South African Baha'is want the best for South Africa.
0: So there we go. Okay, so that's, that's very interesting. So they, they are finding ways to try and uh, and deal with with the, the issues in Iran. By the way, if you have any questions, uh, you're more than welcome. You can Telegram us on 0618951019, or you can SMS us on 34519 if you'd like to talk uh, to our guests. <clears throat> now, I, I would like to ask you about about the South African context, because... Uh, you know, you, you're talking about uh, justice and uh, and equality, and, and trying to uh, make it uh, in everyday life, right? In, in in the world in which we live. So, Nassim, maybe you can tell us about some of the work that you're involved in, and how you see these principles playing out uh, in 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 your life.
2: Well, as I mentioned before, that we we're trying to to translate these principles that Baha'u'llah brought into reality. And so in, in settings all around the country, often in very unassuming settings, um, and in diverse settings. So from township settings to neighborhoods and to suburban neighborhoods, Baha'is together with others are really um, striving to see what this means in practice, and to learn about what it means to translate them into reality, working with all segments of population, so youth, early adolescents, children, adults, and largely engage with an educational process, ensures that knowledge is accessible to all. So, for example, in Mamelodi, in Amapis, and Soweto, Hillbrow, youth are having conversations with their peers about what it means to be a youth in South Africa today um and uh, the large potential that lies within their within their group um and also the potential that lies in the communities in which they reside and how they can uh, unleash their energies to serve their communities these conversations then often intensify in youth gatherings where they read a series of statements and refine their understanding about what it means to youth and how they can undertake simple steps to serve their communities so, for example, in, in Mamalodi recently, a group of adolescents finished, they completed studying a certain book, um, and then they decided, they looked around their community and they realized that the, the children in their community do not have a habit of reading. And so they decided to gather the children and, and read books to them to start to create this culture. And of course, it's a very simple act of service, but when you view it within the broader context of you know every man for himself, it takes on a particular significance.
0: It is, yeah it is interesting uh, you know when we have communities where where people feel disempowered uh, it, it 's crucial also to enable people to find their own agency to make things work that we sometimes come in from the outside and it doesn 't always work that way
2: Yes, exactly. I think society does seem to impose this lethargy on people, the sense of helplessness and and so for adolescent people as young as twelve to see that they can take simple act and that act can have reverberations in their community and then of course as they in- continue to engage they take more and more complex acts of service and then alongside this also they study materials that have deep significance for example there is a book about joy what it means to be a joyf- joyful and how to develop this capacity and to ensure that the ups and downs in life only touch the surface but that the very depths are calm so as they learn about this also then they they share this with their peers and then they, they undertake certain acts of service. Yeah.
0: Do you find that the outside environment also impacts, you know, it must be quite, uh, I don't know how to say, it, but like a, a almost an internal conflict when, when if you've lived in this very, it's yes. called a toxic environment And now suddenly you're thinking about joy yeah. uh, In a place where maybe there hasn't been a lot of that That yeah. must be quite a, 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 a difficult thing For a young person to handle
2: Certainly, I mean we are organic with our environment Our mm-hmm. environment affects us But also we have the power to influence our environment And I think initially often There is a sense of trepidation As they think about act, As we all actually think about Serving our communities There is a sense of trepidation But I think all of us realize as we as we do take certain steps, that there are also many people in our communities that are longing for this, that are longing to come together and build higher, greater degrees of unity. Um, and so, actually, I think as one takes a step, we, we've all realised that there are people, there are forces in the community that also uh, strive for good. Um,
0: and that's and that's what you're finding when you when you're doing this. Yes,
2: I think there are many people of different faiths and no faith that really wish for a better South Africa and and really want to join others to 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 serve their communities.
0: Yeah. Interesting. So uh, so Lim, on, on on your side of things, I mean you're a lawyer, uh you're you're an international lawyer and uh you've actually served all over the world including in Cambodia and uh and all sorts of other places. Tell us a little bit about what what that what that's like.
1: So <clears throat> I remember from a very early age and I think being a bahai helped to shape my view on this. Is that an understanding that the world is like one country. If something is going wrong in one part of the world, if one part of the world is suffering, if a population in one part of the world is being oppressed, it's not just something we see on the news. At a very fundamental level, it affects the health, the well-being, the prosperity, material and spiritual prosperity of other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. The entire world is interconnected that way. And and from that understanding, I, I found in myself this desire to contribute in some small way to the promotion of international justice and international peace. And from the time the International Criminal Court was established, for example, I remember being fascinated. Here's this institution for the first time ever that will make sure that certain standards agreed by the countries of the world will be upheld.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I had a chance in in the very early days as as uh, my first job out of university, actually, was working at the International Criminal Court in The Hague. Um, more recently, as you alluded to, I was uh, appointed by the United Nations to serve in Cambodia as a prosecutor in the trials of the Khmer Rouge leaders. And, and there also is a very telling thing, because you realize here is this... You spoke earlier about contrasts, positive and negative forces, and you saw that play out in the courtroom, too. At one level, here is this shuffling old man with, you know, gastric issues and a headache, who's sitting, you know, being prosecuted for orchestrating the mass murder of one-fifth of his country's population. And at one level, on a human level, you feel pity for this person. And on another level, you realise that institutionally, it's very important for the country to find justice.
0: Uh, could you give us a bit of background quickly? I mean, I don't know if all of our listeners would know Cambodia and the Khmer Rouge, also because it seems to have been quite a long time from when, you, you know, the, what they did and, 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 and the criminal court. So, can you just give us a bit of background of, of exactly who the people were and, and what was going
1: on? So, in, in April 1975, uh, a radical extremist Stalinist movement came to power in, in Cambodia. It was a people's movement initially prompted by a desire for justice, yeah. but it very quickly turned into the proverbial snake that eats its own tail. So you ended up with a radical regime that forcibly evacuated all of the cities, moved all of the people they perceived as bourgeois, feudalists, etc., out into the countryside to farm with their bare hands, you know, for a great leap forward, as it were. They were warned by the Chinese that this doesn't work, but they decided that they were going to do it anyway. Um, and, and the result was an utter disaster because... Anybody who broke an agricultural implement, anyone who couldn't uh, sow enough seed, anyone who couldn't dig enough miles of canal with their bare hands was an enemy of the revolution. Mm -hmm. So entire swathes of the population started being systematically tortured and killed. Eventually, the regime closed in on itself, so seeing enemies everywhere. And after three years and eight months, 22 days, collapsed. Thirty years later, the government realizes and the United Nations realizes and the population is aware that actually we don't know the truth of what happened, and having found the truth, we also there's no justice here. So what there was was a, a, a great subliminal anger in the society
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, that would play out in, in various destructive ways, from domestic violence to to other things. And eventually, the, the government of Cambodia and the United Nations collaborated to establish this hybrid court made up of both Cambodian and international judges, both Cambodian and international prosecutors, working shoulder to shoulder to try to bring some measure of accountability, uh, an, an imperfect process, but, but a step in the right direction.
0: And, and, and interesting sort of if you think about our own process here in South Africa, we, we, did, we, we kind of even didn't have a court quite like that. It was, it was a slightly different process.
1: It was, and it was an, an, an effort to find the truth that was a very constructive one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think what what most people would agree is an incomplete process. And what we see now from from uh, information that's been made public is that, you know, there are tentative steps towards looking for justice now, uh, many years after the TRC closed its doors.
0: It's very very interesting. Um, I mean, could I could I ask you, were you, w- when was this process that you did with with, with Cambodia? That must have been in the 90s or?
1: Well, the process is still, the court is still, still looking, going Still okay. going on with the final appeals, actually. But uh, I was there between 2005 and 20. Okay, so. Sorry, f- sorry 2010 and 2015.
0: Okay, so it's actually very, it's, it's quite a recent thing. It's mm-hmm. not a... So, so we, it, you know, the, the court has become kind of controversial in the last few years, particularly in South Africa. Uh, and in other parts of the world, do you still see that, that this is an institution that people are, are, that, that that's still doing what it, what it was set up to do?
1: You know, humanity is coming to consciousness about its oneness. Mm-hmm. These kinds of crimes that, that the ICC deals with, for example, are crimes that strike at the heart of that oneness. Right. Right? Genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes at their core are saying, you are not one with me. Mm-hmm. That's that's what they're about that's why they happen is as soon as we start othering people at the at the extremes it ends up with genocide right you know on a micro level in our communities it ends up with me not talking to my neighbor but actually they are very much part of the same lack of consciousness lack of awareness mm-hmm. ignorance um and and so i think that these institutions being built worldwide we should not expect them to be perfect now Mm-hmm. But we should understand that they're part of a positive movement that is worthy of our support.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And to which we should lend our, put our shoulder to the wheel to make them better.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I say that not being naive about the, um, the, the ch- systemic challenges that these kind of institutions face. They need to be built.
0: And, and I mean, it's an interesting aspect that I think listeners might appreciate or like to know about, about the Baha'i is that you, you, as, as the religion, you, you don't like politics, uh, at a, in, in a sort of capital P kind of a way. You, you, people are not encouraged to, to follow that as a path because it's considered divisive. Is that, is that right?
1: You know, the, the watchword of the Baha'i faith is unity. Mm-hmm. And so on, when we use the word politics, right, we're using it in a few ways. So there's the politics that means caring about civic life.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Baha'is are actively involved in that. But then there's partisan politics. There's the politics which says my group believes this and my group wants power and your group should not be in power. You are opposition to me and, and these kind of partisan debates. And Baha'u'llah very clearly guided his, his followers to say, stay away from this.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. So in one sense, um, we say that the ends cannot, the ends and the means must be coherent, (laughs) that the, the means cannot be you, in you conflict with the... You can't the ends
0: justifying the means. Exactly. A, and yeah. so
2: if, if we are striving to build higher and higher levels of unity, thought and action, then we would not want to engage in something that undermines that. Mm. At the same time, we are well-wishers of the government. And we understand the importance of a community, of a society organizing itself. Mm-hmm. It's just that we don't take... We don't engage in partisan politics. Partisan yeah. politics.
0: That's probably not a bad idea for South Africans in general, maybe. I think uh, we could, we could definitely, definitely learn from that. I mean, how many Baha'i are there around the world?
1: You know, the, according to the recent estimates, around uh, 7, 8 million. But that being said, because the Baha'i activities are open to all, mm-hmm. um, there's, there's really no measure of how many people are involved in that process of community building. Of applying knowledge, of trying to learn to apply these principles in their community settings. They, they may number many more.
0: And, 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 mm-hmm. and in South Africa we have a, a, a community that lives as well? Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, yes.
0: Uh, and Joburg, Cape Town, Pretoria. Exactly. Sure, yeah. Everywhere.
2: Yeah. Suburbs, townships. <laughs> every, in, in many different settings you can mm-hmm. find Baha'is together with those who, who they work alongside.
1: Yesterday we were visiting some Baha'i friends in Northwest Province, in a
0: in a village, uh, in Madidi. Oh wow! Okay, so really uh, out there, uh, and and do Baha'i as as a faith have uh, like the set of laws or, or or rituals, or is it more about the the principle level of of, of existence?
2: Well, um, Baha'u'llah, like any other like other manifestations of God, or other prophets, has brought a new set of laws. Um, and, for example, the law of prayer, that mm-hmm. prayer is a, f- a form of conversation between man and his creator. Um, and that it, just as the body needs nourishment, so too does the soul. And so this is a law that Baha'u'llah has brought, the, the need for all humanity really to engage in this conversation on a daily basis. Um, there are, and the laws are seen also not as a set of restrictive rules imposed by God, by the Lord upon man but actually as um, as some as as how do you say precepts that allow man to be freed from forces that would seek to uh, seek to um bind him um so it allows us to to engage on a higher level, not to be bound to the material world but allow us to to be freed from
1: Bahá'u'lláh also actually eliminated almost every form of ritual from faith mm. um so Baha'i gatherings are, are I would say, quite remarkably free
0: from ritual. Mm-hmm. And, and, and uh, all right, so we're going to take a short break. I see we, we need to do that. Uh, when we come back, we'll be, we'll be speaking more about the Baha'i. This is the New Blue Review with Benji Shulman. Welcome back to 101.9 High FM. I'm Benji Shulman. This is the New Blue Review. Welcome back to the show. Good to be with you. Now, I don't know if you've had a chance... Uh, to do uh, some reading over the holidays. So if you haven't, if you still want to catch up with some reading, I want to make an, a book recommendation for you, uh, one that I've just finished. Very easy book, very simple uh, book to read uh, by one of uh, my favorite authors on the Israeli scene. It's a guy by the name of Mati Friedman, and he is a, a Canadian, originally moved to Israel some time ago, and he he used to cover the Middle East for... A- AFP which is one of the big wire services, and he kind of really got on the map in terms of uh, I think the Jewish uh, and Israeli scene because he was covering all uh, of the stuff that happens uh, in Israel, particularly the politics and the, the the conflict side and in the middle of the Gaza war uh, in twenty I think he did in two thousand and fourteen uh, he wrote this piece about how uh, the news worked to uh, to to really marginalise Israel in the news, uh, and that's uh, and and the way that I, AFP in particular, who was his employer or his former employer, was doing this, and this made him I think tremendously unpopular. But it also uh, you know really put him into the spotlight. And since then, he's gone on to write a number of very interesting books and and articles. Uh, he most recently did one for the New York Times about the history of the Israeli Railway uh, Association and and the railways and what they mean. Uh, which is uh, fantastic uh, and well worth reading, uh, and he's also written a book called Pumpkin Flowers about his experience in Lebanon uh, in in the early two thousands, and and both uh, very very uh, interesting. But but the most recent book and the one which I would uh, urge people to read is his new book called Spies of No Country, and what the book is about is a book is is a, is a initiative called the Arab Section uh in 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 Israel which was basically uh, a part of the Palmach and eventually uh, a part of the Mossad and and what it was was a group of Jews from Arab countries uh who were recruited to spy both on sort of uh the neighboring uh uh, uh countries and and some of the neighboring communities because they could fit in uh because they were very diffic- it was very difficult to tell uh, whether they were Jewish or Arab. And, and what he does is he tells the story of these people who, uh, for example, escaped from places like Syria or Lebanon, uh, or Iraq and ended up trying to integrate themselves into Israel right in the 50s when, uh, when the state was founded and was very much founded, uh, by the Ashkenazi Jews from Europe. And and nonetheless, whilst they they sort of were part of the, the the big Zionist dream, they also were sort of excluded because they weren't uh sort of fully acculturated into the society at that time. And one of the things that they are, get hired to do is to be part of this spy unit. And so it kind of is a story about spies and things that spies do. And uh, you've got kind of all the skit and donner that you would expect from that kind of of uh uh book you know all the intrigue and, and and that kind of thing but you also have what's uh uh you also have it's it's like a story of identity as well a story about how these people went all the way from uh where they were in the arab world got to israel and and sort of began uh, began creating themselves as Israelis, so to speak, uh, only to find that their their huge contribution to to the country was that they were bringing with them all the habits and mores of their their home uh, arab states uh, which they were then able to use to advance um, advance a- advance the the goals of, of the country which were of course uh, very much at war at that particular point and and he also uses it to show how uh, we understand Israel today, and he 's got some very interesting points about these early immigrants and how their views affected uh, Israeli politics that we're now seeing playing out today and it's uh, It really is a fascinating book very well written uh, and and written in a, in a very human way uh, with with a sort of retelling of of aspects of Israel that you you probably did know about but but not in this particular way so I would highly recommend that. Uh, Spies of No Country by Matty Friedman I'm really hoping that this year we can actually get him onto the show I'd love to chat to him as well uh, because uh, it really is a fantastic uh, book and he's a great writer and I'm interested to see what he does next Anyway, that does bring us to the end of the show for today. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Mandy who does all the production who uh, is on the sound and Craig who pushes all the big red buttons uh, and thank you to you for listening We'll be back next week on the new Blue Review